You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Michael Nixon. Michael is the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion at Andrews University. After high school, Michael decided to attend Antillian Adventist University in Puerto Rico alongside some friends from high school. It was there that he first experienced racism at the hands of a man of the cloth, which led him to re-examine his faith and redefine what Christianity means for him. After a year at Antillian, Michael transferred to Oakwood University and finished his undergraduate studies at Andrews. He would later go on to earn a Juris Doctorate from John Marshall Law School in Chicago. But after a relocation to the East Coast with his wife, he struggled to launch his legal career. He took a job in retail while he sorted things out and, at his wife's suggestion, used a volunteer opportunity as a stepping stone to a job offer with the Fair Housing Justice Center. A few short years later, when his alma mater was looking for a chief diversity officer, Michael answered the call. There, he provides spiritual, administrative, and academic leadership for the equity and diversity vision, resources, and programs across the university. He's also an adjunct professor in the history and political science department, where he advises pre-law students. Now, I know that given the current climate, many of our listeners are being tapped by their employers for their thoughts on how to address diversity deficiencies at their organizations. And I also know that many of you are emotionally and mentally exhausted. Keeping that in mind, in addition to sharing his personal story, Michael also offers some insight into how to navigate those waters professionally. So without further ado, please enjoy. Michael, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. I mean, given the climate and everything that's going on in the world, super excited to be talking to you um, about an area that I know you're all too familiar with and working uh, professionally. So I'm glad we were able to get this on the calendar. It feels like a timely conversation to be having. In addition to, of course, jumping into your personal story, I'm I'm interested to hear uh, some of your perspective uh, regarding what's going on in the world and particularly in corporate America and, and academic institutions as well. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be conversing with you. Awesome. So let's get into it. Sure. Who is Michael Nixon Esquire? Oh, that's a, and, and I knew this con- this question was coming. And so I'm going to act as if I'm prepared now. But um, that's a, it's a simple and a complex question, if that makes sense. And so, you know, quite simply, um, you know, I, I've been trying to someone who's present. And so, uh, and accounted for in a lot of different spaces. So in the space where I work, um, ensuring that um, I am walking into that calling, because I, I really look at my vocational work as a calling, being in DNI and all that. And I know we'll get into that more. Um, but just really paying more attention to the moment. Um, and so for me, that also means, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm also a father, I'm a husband. And, um, you know, I'm also a Christian. And so in all those different aspects of who I am, wanting to make sure that I'm present, that I'm accounted for, and that I'm engaged in um, the the work here at my job, as well as the work at home, the work of parenting, um, the work of justice that that ultimately is really at the forefront of people's minds right now. Um, And so... 
Yeah, I think the word that can describe me currently is, um, you know, I'm, I'm present, I'm engaged, and I'm actively seeking um, what today has to offer and taking every day one day at a time, being strategic in my, in my thinking and my visioning, but also not missing the beauty of each day and of each moment and trying to, um, you know, not live passively, but live much more actively and engaged. And do you think you've evolved into this person? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, and I don't know how familiar folks are with the Enneagram, so it's, but it's for those who know, who do know, it's more of a personality um, index. It's actually much more than that, but to, to dumb it down, uh, of course, a lot of folks have probably heard of like Myers-Briggs and things of that nature. Um, and the Enneagram is a much more in-depth way for us to understand ourselves as well, as well as the systems and structures around us. And so there are nine personality types. And I'm a nine, which the word for that is peacemaker. And that's a really nice word. And it sounds like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm a peacemaker. That's cool. Um, but there are two sides to that coin. So for most of my life, I would say that I've been a bit more passive in my peacemaking. And it's been much more about going with the flow and trying to keep the peace, quote unquote, and trying to make sure everybody around me is okay and happy and that I don't really rock the boat and those kinds of things. And, you know, I was kind of the person that could fit into pretty much any crowd because of that, because, um, you know, I was really uh, skilled at making folks feel comfortable and that kind of a thing. And there's some positive attributes to that. But what I've learned um, over the past few years, particularly doing this work, is that there's a difference between peace and quiet. And so um, I think that peacemaking can actually be quite nosy, noisy oftentimes. It could actually be um, quite active, quite aggressive. And um, in order to uh, achieve true peace within systems and structures and within relationships, oftentimes, you know, you have to, you know, be much more proactive, less passive. And those are all things. Another word for the negative version of a nine is the sloth. And so you can just kind of, you know, procrastination has always been my big thing. Um, and it's been something that's hindered me from productivity and things of that nature, both in school and professionally. And so I've had to, for my personality type, really work hard to counteract and counterbalance sort of my natural propensity to be passive. And definitely over the past, I'd say three to four years, I've begun the journey of shifting my frame on what it means to be a peacemaker. That's great. And, you know, I I'm a firm believer in often how we were socialized as children, where we fall in the lineup of kids, our family dynamic can greatly uh, contribute to how we present ourselves in the world. Um, and thankfully, there is an evolution for a lot of us where we're able to really find our, our voice if we didn't have it. But tell me a bit about your upbringing and how that might have informed uh, you playing this role of peacemaker when you were younger. Sure. So um, I... My father, Timothy Nixon, he's a minister. Um, my mother, Sandria Nixon, uh, she's a nurse. She has her doctorate in nursing. She's a nurse practitioner now. Um, she was originally born in Jamaica, migrated to the States when she was about seven or eight. Uh, my father was born in Brooklyn. Um, and so they both actually, she, when she migrated to the States, she migrated to New York City as well. So they both really have heavily, a heavy influence of their rooting from there. Um, I'm the first of two children that they have. Um, I have a younger sister, Camille. Um, and so 
And we were about probably six and a half, seven years apart. And so I, I thought that that was unique because um, it was kind of it was kind of one of those vibes where it seemed like for my parents, the way they explained it to me, it's kind of like they had two only children in a way. There was some overlap, of course, but we, of course, um, you know, were, were never really like in the same school per se or that kind of a thing. Like I was in middle school. She's in like kindergarten, first grade. I'm in high school. She's not there yet. College. So we're kind of hitting these phases of life at a different sphere. And so what I found is that um, we're starting to, to develop a much more, much more of a connection and um, more of a friendship, I'd say now that as we've gotten older, um, which didn't really exist when I was younger. And so, um, whereas my mom, you know, she was the oldest, she has um, two, she was the oldest of two younger sisters and a brother. Um, she was pr- really like a second mom to her siblings in a lot of ways, it, at least the way that she kind of frames that and remembers that, you know, uh, when, when her mom had to go to work or something, she was really the one who was um, sort of running the show. And so oftentimes, you know, she tried to instill that in me as a big brother, uh, but the dynamic was just a bit different. So I think at times she was a bit frustrated with me as as to, you know, maybe something's happening in my sister's life and her wanting me to step up and have a conversation with her about it. And I'm kind of like, well, did y'all have a conversation with her about it? Like, you, you know, but in her mind, that's what it means to be an older sibling, you know, and my father... He's actually the youngest of five. He had two older brothers and older sisters. Um, and so he he was sort of the baby of the family. And, and he kind of had a whole different perspective on maybe how that should go. And, um, you know, ultimately, um, I think for me, and I didn't know um, the, the exact language for my personality type at the time, I gravitated much more towards my dad's frame of thinking around what it meant to be a big brother because it was just easier. It was like, oh, okay, I don't have to, you know, you know, be this third parent or something like that. I'd rather do that and focus on, you know, my friend groups and and schooling or whatever the case may be, as opposed to, um, you know, walking into the agency that my mom, you know, sort of had for me. And so, um, this started to play out as well as I went into college because because my mother, um, her dream for me was always to become a physician. And, um, you know, I, I, it's it's tough now because he's kind of went off the deep end. But of course, as I was growing up, like Ben Carson was like a huge like source of inspiration and stuff. And so gifted hand, she got she got me the book and it was required reading and all this different type of stuff. And um you know, I, I'm almost like very, really thankful I didn't try to walk in those footsteps now because it'd probably be more devastating his demise that we've seen. But um, yeah, so <laughs> a, a quick funny story on this. As I started uh, college, I did my first year um, actually in, at a school in Puerto Rico. Um, she was still adamant about me pursuing um, becoming a physician. And so I was a, a history major. Um, at the time, because I was, I had a personal interest in the legal field, uh, which I ended up pursuing. But I was the only history major in an anatomy and physiology class. On top of that, it's being taught in Spanish, which I was not fluent in. Still, I'm not fluent in. I got conversational while I was there. But because um, two of my friends who I went with, they actually were pursuing careers in the medical field. And so she kind of spun it as, well, you can take the class together, that kind of a thing. And um, Thinking back on that, it's like still kind of uh, still living into, and of course, at the time, I still didn't understand that this was this peacemaker part of me. 
uh, trying to keep the peace and just trying to not rock the boat. But everything within me saying, no, I absolutely should not be taking this class. I know for a fact this isn't what I want to do. But yet I enrolled in the class because my mom wanted me to do it. And it's like, well, I want my mom to be happy. So I'll just try to take the class. And that was obviously, as you can imagine, an unmitigated disaster. And halfway through the semester, um, my dad flew down to visit me and I talked to him about it. And he's like, let's just drop the class. Don't worry. I'll talk to your mom about it after, but don't say anything to her. And we just kind of worked it out. And it was like, okay, cool. Now I can just kind of move on with my educational journey. Um, But that was sort of the first crack in the screen of starting to understand that um, I need to figure out who I am. I need to figure out, um, you know, what God has in store for me. What, what have I been called to do? What's my purpose? Um, what, what do I actually even want? You know, which is a question that I have to go back to oftentimes in my life because of the way I am. I don't often think about what that is. And that did definitely play out, you know, throughout my upbringing and, and into the early part of my schooling. And I think there are a number of dynamics at work here. And, and I think a lot of particularly Black professionals that, that I've spoken to on the show that I know personally have a similar story. And you're, you're dealing with Christianity, which, you know, when you talk about parent-child dynamics, you're always going to hear that honor that father and that mother. You know, it's just yeah. certain things you got to take. And if they tell you to do yeah. it, you do it. So there's there's that piece of it. Um, there's Black culture, right? In a mm-hmm. sense that you don't challenge your parents in certain ways. And then there's Caribbean culture, right? So as, as someone who has a Jamaican father okay. <laughs> and, and, and many, many uh-huh. friends who are of West Indian descent, uh, the medicine is, is brought up quite a bit, right? Uh-huh. You've got to go in this field. But also this idea, particularly if you're the older sibling, that you are an extension of the, the parents and you have to behave as, in a certain way, especially if there's that that gap. So those are a lot of different things to have to overcome um, as a son to come into yourself. And there are parts of it that I, I honor and that it mm-hmm. in, in who it makes us as people. Um, and we often satirize and make a joke about it. But I think there is this underlying current within, you know, Black parents and Black children. Like, this is the path that I'm setting for you, and this is the one you must take. Um, And if you don't, there's a level of, it feels like disrespect, or, you know, you're trying to hurt or disappoint your parents. And really, it's just charting your own course. Um, And and I talked to, and not that all of my white friends and colleagues you know, don't have that experience, um, but the the vast majority don't understand it, right? Um, And sort of living up to this expectation of what your parents have for you. But what I find interesting is that you went to school in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. So, um, so I, I I went to so I'm working at Andrews University now, which we could talk about a bit later. But um, I initially moved into this community. Um, it was in 1998. I was going into middle school. My dad got hired to serve as one of the chaplains here on the campus. So Andrews is a Christian campus, and uh, he ended up working here for about 13 years. And so, or maybe it's 15. It was a, it was a, it was a grip. Um, so, so went to elementary school, high school here. And, um, you know, I think there was a bit of an assumption that my parents, you know, thought that, well, you know, Michael will probably just go to Andrews university and, um, you know, for college and, um, a friend of mine. So I had, you know, two really close friends, uh, my friends, Joel and Ray, uh, they're both black as well. And, um, you know, th- they were sort of, particularly my friend, Joel, 
he he was really the more adventurous one of our group. And he was always kind of, because again, I'm still sort of like a go with the flow kind of guy at this point. Um, and and so a, a, a mutual friend of the three of ours, um, his name is, his name is Edwin, um, actually was born in Puerto Rico and his parents had both worked at this institution there, uh, Antillian University. And um, he, he basically had said to us one day, like early part of our senior year in high school, Yo, I'm gonna I'm gonna end up, you know, going to to school out here in Puerto Rico. Y'all should just come with me. And he kind of started it off as a joke, but he kept bringing it up and was like, "I think y'all will really like it." That kind of a thing. And so I, I didn't really pay attention that much because, again, I'm sort of thinking in my mind like, I don't know, I don't think my mom's gonna let me go all the way to Puerto Rico. That's like the first thing I'm thinking. Um, I knew my dad would kind of be like, whatever. He was like, you know. And of course, my dad loves me, but he comes from the mindset of, all right, you know, you're going to college, like, go light your world. Like, I'll see you holidays. We'll see you in summer. We'll see you when we see you kind of a thing. Uh, she was obviously much more engaged in that decision. And so um, it's something that I kind of broached to her, like here and there throughout my senior year, like sort of just as an idea. Um, then I would sort of escalate the plan like a little bit more to the point where like I applied and stuff and got accepted and that kind of a thing. And it was always like, yeah, I'm just trying. I'm just like, you know, it's good to have options. Like, you know, I'm not committing to anything. And one of the major clinchers actually was the fact that um, tuition at the university is very cheap. And so it was actually cheaper than what they were paying for me to go to high school. And so um, ultimately, I just kind of kept pushing that card because uh, at the time, my parents had committed to, you know, help me with paying for undergrad schooling. They were like, you know, grad school, you have to figure that out on your own. But we're going to help you as much as we can with undergrad. And so um, that was ultimately, I think, the factor which pushed it over the hump. Like, again, my dad was open to it, was like, yeah, go ahead, do your thing. Uh, but ultimately, um, my mom sort of got on board with it. And, you know, I kind of talked about, yeah, you know, I could learn Spanish and all this different type of stuff, and that'll help me in the future. Uh, again, I, I didn't end up keeping up with my Spanish. And so that ended up happening, but, uh, yeah, so ended up going and that was a really interesting experience going there. I learned a lot about, um, racial dynamics in the, in Latinx culture, uh, was really interesting for sure. Um, in particular, uh, learning a lot more about the PRDR divide because there being a, a significant uh, population of, of Dominican students who were there at the institution, some of them in Puerto Rico, you know, from DR, but via New York. And so sort of that connection and how the divide even exists there in the city, um, you know, coming onto campus, there were assumptions that my friends and I were all Dominican because of course we're darker skin, uh, which was always funny because there are native born Puerto Ricans that are blacker than the shirt I'm wearing, you know, and so right. it's, but it's that colorism. And that was my real first immersion into sort of the ethnic divides and, you know, that colorism, which, of course, I had a context of racism from the States. Um, and that actually even it, it was an interesting sort of spiritual um, journey for me going onto the campus because um, a friend of the a friend of our friend's family, that friend Edwin, um, you know, who's a minister. We didn't know he was a minister at the time, but we had met him the summer before we went to um, Antillian. So, you know, at this point, we're all kind of getting together and, you know, planning for 
trip out there, get in supplies, whatever the case may be. And uh, this family friend of theirs had come up to visit them and we met him sort of briefly. Um, and it was, it's kind of a crazy story, but long story short there, um, that guy uh, sort of developed this assumption that um, me and my friends, Joel and Ray, who were uh, really this, this kid Edwin's only real good black friends, he developed, he developed this belief that we were drug dealers. It was just like, I got, I know that kind of went left, but it was just like, he got a weird vibe from us or whatever the case may be. And, um, which just, you know, for your listeners uh, understanding, you know, not, me and none of my friends do drugs have never have. And that's just, not, that's never been our vibe. Certainly not drug dealers. You know what I mean? And so, um, we got wind of this, like shortly before we went to the Island, um, but didn't really think much of it. We were just like, you know, this dude is kind of, he's crazy or whatever. He just doesn't know us. And he made a really stupid assumption. And so um, this is a Christian institution as well that we're going to in Puerto Rico. So we walk into church like our first weekend there and everybody had been telling us about how amazing their church service is and how they have this great pastor and you're really going to like it. And the pastor gets up to speak and it's this guy that was their family friend who had made assumptions about us being drug dealers. And so, as you can imagine, the three of us got up and walked out. And that, it was, that was extremely damaging to me spiritually because, um, you know, particularly growing up in, in, my, in my parents' household and my father's character and the way that we were taught not to, uh, to judge people based on any particular reason, whether that's racial, whether that's, you know, religious affiliation, whatever the case may be. Um, and so to, and I was 17 at the time, and it's kind of like my first time really out of the house. Um, and to have that sort of damaging, really bigotry occur from a from a spiritual leader uh, was was pretty rough for the three of us, for sure. And, it, and I think it took us a while to um, to open ourselves back up to really engaging um, with Christianity again. And and of course, I mean. There are lots of examples of racism in Christianity, which, I mean, we could talk more about. But that was one of the first examples um, of it in, in a real direct way for me. And it was during a critical age, and, and which really it made that whole school year really odd, you know, because it's like, all right, well, the pastor of this university church believes this about us. And, you know, he's hugely influential on their campus. Who knows who he's sharing that with? Um, and so it made all of our interactions really awkward because we just didn't really know who thought what about us, you know, and, and so in a way where we thought about, you know, going to Puerto Rico as this sort of escape almost, or this sort of paradise uh, of sorts, um, there was really a reminder that there's really no escape, um, as black persons from the kind of bigotry that we often face in this country as well. And, you know, it, what's interesting is, is having that experience, um, not only having the experience, but having the experience at a Christian university. And also many of us who grew up in the church and go to, to college start to question things just because that's what college does. Right. It, it prompts you to ask, ask the tough questions. Um, and as someone who went to a quote unquote secular university, I don't know how different that experience is at a Christian school. Um, but when you start school and you're sullied in that way, your view is vision is sullied from that experience from Christian leadership. And then you're in an environment that is designed for discourse and debate and exploring things. You mentioned that it, it changed 
um, sort of your that experience changed your view of, of Christianity. But can you expound on that a little bit more um, and how it affected you and sort of changed your outlook on the faith? Yeah. And so I, I went into a space where I got I got really judgmental. I think I got really bitter in some ways because to see, you know, someone who's supposed to be, you know, a pastor, a minister who could just be that flippant with um, disregarding really our humanity or anything about us and just making those kinds of assumptions, it, it made me question the authenticity of this whole thing. And it's like, so all these, and I, and I, so I guess the thing that undergirded and, and helped me sort of return back to engaging with it for myself was, was thankfully um, my parents setting a good example at home because I knew that it was authentic for them, right? But the confusion was, well, how, how could how could this person have ascended to such a height but be so bigoted? And it was confusing to me, you know? Um, and so, I, yeah, I got pretty judgmental. I got very cynical, skeptical. Um, you know, I also have, you know, classmates who are studying to be ministers and, you know, there are all kinds of types of activities that, you know, they're engaging in. And, but they were like 18, 19 years old, 17, like I was. And so in retrospect, thinking back on that and having lived more life, I can look back and say, oh, okay, well, they're human and, you know, they're human just like me. And that pastor who did that is human. And, you know, you know, God uses broken vessels to do uh, confusing things, given uh, the nuanced behavior that those persons may engage themselves in, you know. But but at the time, yeah, I, it, it made me very uh, cynical. I think I had some tough conversations with my parents in regards to it. Um, some of it I kept to myself. And I I would say, but again, being sort of that peacemaker, going back to that, it wasn't something that I was super vocal about. It was more of like a private personal thing where um, I don't know that I ever veered into atheism, but definitely dabbled with some agnosticism and just deciding that, okay, well, you know, to the extent that there is a God, um, you know, maybe there's just certain people that he doesn't engage with, you know, and, and that kind of a thing and trying to navigate um, cause it, cause it didn't make sense, you know, for, from my perspective, it was like, you know, and this was probably, I learned, you know, later that this was sort of a, a false sort of pedestal I was putting ministers on, but you sort of think certain professions, um, were, you know, if you're in a certain profession that, you know, certain sorts of behaviors and beliefs, you know, you should be immune to those things, or you should have worked those things out of you by now or that kind of a thing. Um, but at the time, yeah, it, it was definitely, um, it was definitely difficult to make sense of. And I'm going to take a bit of a detour uh, since we're talking about this, but there's sure. uh, been a lot of conversation about white supremacy and the intersection with that racism in the church. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you you saw the hubbub, I guess it was last week, about Lecrae and the interview mm-hmm. he had with Lou Giglio. Um, I did. Yeah, and him saying, let's not call it a white, white privilege, but, you know, let's call it a white blessing. And a lot oh, of, the, you know, Black theologians and particularly female thought leaders like went off on Lecrae for mm-hmm. sort of letting that slide. And I, yeah. I understand Lecrae's perspective in that he was kind of stunned into silence, you know, in that moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so that happens. And then uh, Sean King, who's always a polarizing figure, but yeah. you mentioned, you know, white Christianity is a form of white supremacy and Jesus wasn't black. So there's all this 
this dialogue happening. And one of the things that I've seen, not only in my own life, but that of uh, folks who grew up like us, you know, steeped mm-hmm. in church, mm-hmm. but also have a lot of the historical context, uh, knowing how Christianity was used to oppress us mm-hmm. as a people. Um, and many, many folks, many Black people in our age group have, particularly professionals, have effectively denounced Christianity, right? Yeah. Um, and, and moved away from that and, and thrown the baby out with the bathwater uh, in, in a sense, because it has been sullied for them. And, and, and many of us know stories of pastors who are untoward, folks who are Christian and very racist, you know, pedophilia. There are a lot of things that go on um, yeah. behind the clo- behind closed doors. But speaking yeah. specifically to um, this idea of racism, white supremacy and Christianity and, and what that really means, how given the fever pitch right now mm-hmm. about this, how do you reconcile today? Right. Where you are in your life and in the spirit of full disclosure, your wife is a pastor. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, you being very close, obviously, to leadership in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so how do you reconcile today your faith um, as there is more discourse happening and more really blatant examples of this racism that still is pervasive um, within within the faith? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a great question, great topic. Um, I mean, that, that could probably be its own podcast alone, to be honest. But what I would say is, so for me, I, I've tried to, um, you know, it, it starts as it starts on the individual level, I think, you know, and, and for me, um, I've tried to continue to make sure that I'm finding a way to connect my um, my unapologetic blackness with my faith. And, and, and as long as I'm, that's sort of the, the journey that I've been on with God is basically saying like, Hey, uh, can I be myself here? And and I hear God telling me, absolutely. Cause I created you to be yourself everywhere. Um, and, uh, walking and being a follower of Christ and a follower of the way, which I'm trying to focus much more on as opposed to, uh, the follower of a certain set of beliefs and doctrines and many and monuments of theology that are oftentimes built up in faith communities, uh, but really looking intently at the person of Christ and 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 what Christ represented and um, what a sacrificial following of Christ requires. And so, for me, um, I started that individual level, and and a huge source of support in that um, is the. Uh, theologian Reverend Howard Thurman, uh, who I've really come into much more connection with uh, over probably the past two, three years. Uh, He wrote a powerful, powerful book uh, entitled Jesus and the Disinherited. And, um, you know, it is said that, you know, Dr. King, who uh, was a mentee of Thurman's uh, and Thurman was a classmate of King's father in school, um, carried a copy of Jesus and the Disinherited wherever he went in his coat pocket. And so that book, for me, helped me understand uh, how Christ, because this is all about Christ at the end of the day. I had to strip away all the different, again, monuments of belief and monuments around worship style and Eurocentric Christianity and white Jesus and all these different uh, images that have been thrown at us our entire lives, even within the Black church oftentimes, because 
There's a lot of Black Christianity that's been shaped by whiteness and white superiority um, because oftentimes we've been we've been receiving a theological hermeneutic from that frame and perspective, uh, and and we've been taught that Black liberation theology uh, is not valid. Oftentimes, you know, uh, but but to see in that work from Thurman the fact that Jesus connects directly to those of us who have been marginalized, oppressed, disenfranchised, cast aside, forgotten, um, helped me understand that, okay, like that's a, a, a Christ that can identify with the disinherited is a Christ that I can follow. Uh, because if it's all about, you know, power and majority culture and, um, you know, th- this this false picture of American exceptionalism, which is you know, wrapped up in what they call Christianity um, and, you know, Christian right-wing evangelicalism and all that. I want no parts of that. I, I just can't stomach it at all. And that's sort of where I was. But it wasn't until I sort of rediscovered, and, and, in, and in addition to Thurman, of course, you know, Reverend James Cone, um, who's really seen as one of the fathers of Black liberation theology, his powerful work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, again, which which connects the uh, the plight of uh, Black Americans and the Black diaspora, uh, both in America and across the globe, to the the life and suffering of Christ. Um, that's really what helped me on the individual level understand that. Okay, no, this is this is uniquely the place for me, um, and and you know I can reject these images of white superiority, white supremacy, white Jesus, and still call myself Christian because Christ identifies with me, identifies with Blackness unapologetically, uh, and as a bonus, when he walked this earth, was a man of color. And so everybody just needs to, you know, hey, just recognize it, accept it, um, and, and, um, and then hopefully move forward from there. And so for me, that's what keeps me connected, is I, I have an understanding of who I am, of whose I am, um, and the fact that, again, um, Christ accepts every part of me as an unapologetic Black man. That's great. And I think, too, you know, at a, a very tactical level, one of the things that um, was sort of a, an epiphany, you know, for me, and I've had my own journey as it relates to church and, and all of that, but um, I was, it, it, someone had passed away and, um, you know, people were sending their condolences online and someone that I knew. And, um, but it wasn't the gathering that, you know, I had grown up with when you lose someone, how people come together. And, and the conversation I was having with my family at the time is just remembering how much the church represents at a very tactical level, a sense of community for yeah. Black people and an ability to mobilize and rally around people when it's 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 most needed. And um, some of that, and, and many people still have it who are still connected to the church, of course, but as people tend to start to move away from that, that sense of community is not manifested in the same way, which we absolutely need as, as yeah. people. And um, I think, you know, that the church has always represented a safe haven uh, for us. Um, now we know the stories of when it that trust is violated and that safety is sure. violated. I'm not minimizing mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. we pooled resources. We came together when it ma- mattered. We supported families when they were in crisis. You know all of those things, and and that's the piece that I fear um, as we move to this more progressive space where many people are rejecting um, church in the traditional sense. Uh, and and I speak as someone 
who's in, on that same journey, but are we losing uh, or how do we maintain that sense of community, right? As, yeah. as we liberate yeah. ourselves from uh, the more fear-based theology uh, mm-hmm. version of Christianity, for sure, because that piece is just as important. Yeah, no, I think that's that's so good. And I think for, for us as Christians, um, we have to step back into our legacy um, of engaging with the work of equity and justice um, and in a much more tangible way. Uh, and, and I think a lot of us are doing it, but it's funny, like for, for some reason, and maybe this is just something for me personally, but um, it's, it's, not, it's not until like recently being involved with, you know, Black Lives Matter demonstrations this time where it's hit home for me on a deeper level the fact that my engagement in that space is an it's an extension and an outgrowth of my you know christian experience it's not like something that i'm doing on the side which even subconsciously is sort of how I, it was categorized in my head you know going back to to you know thurman and king it's it's a reminder that you know the civil rights movement was a uniquely christian movement you know and 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 it's the roots of nonviolent, you know, demonstration and, and things of that nature are rooted in that, you know, spiritual frame. And so um, I think that that is something that we have to, you know, actively re-engage back in so that folks understand that the church still is that place to your point where we can have community, where we can come together, strategize, organize, mobilize, and, and think through some um, solutions to the challenges that we face because um, you know, it, it's a part of who we are and, and, and God wants us to um, engage with it again, not as some side separate thing, but as a part of what we're being motivated to do. Mm-hmm. And I think what I think is one interesting byproduct of what we're, we're seeing in the world as tragic as it is, and not that all this stuff hasn't been going on, right, forever, right. but right. It, it's where the focus is in the media is the line or the separation between, quote, church and state uh, is blurring a lot. And, and people, um, you know, are, are more willing and open to be uplifted by the faith and talk to voices who are in the faith. Um, and there's not that line that's like, okay, whatever you guys do over the church is cool, but we're not bringing that here. You're seeing gospel artists being called on to kind of bring the world together. Um, obviously, the leading voices like Bishop T.D. Jakes. Um, so from, yeah. from that perspective, so many people are hurting or seething and, and resting in their own anger um, that they're looking for hope. And yeah. that hope may come from faith leaders or, or folks who are active uh, in the ministry or in Christianity in, in some other way, where I, I think we're moving towards that reconciliation of how do we present our faith in a way where it is palatable and we extend grace to those who may not necessarily align with everything um, and mm-hmm. the legalistic portion of it, but there are, there are pieces of it, which honestly is what Christ-like, being Christ-like is, right? It's right. exhibiting love, love and wisdom, even if someone doesn't believe everything that you believe. So I think that is a good byproduct of what's happening. Um, that it's 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 a moment for those who are who call themselves Christian to rise to the occasion and have the difficult conversations and stop separating activism from Christianity because the two yeah. go hand in hand for yep. sure. So I'm interested to see if this awakening continues and evolve um, as we continue to have these conversations about structural inequality, racism, and police brutality for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on, and I think what 
what um, hopefully what I think believers are seeing is that the borders are starting to give way. And, you know, one of the things, the thoughts that I go back to often is just the recognition that, um, you know, everything is sacred. Everything belongs. There's evidence of the divine everywhere in everything. That, that doesn't mean uh, I'm not advocating for pantheism and saying that we worship everything, but it's an understanding that, um, you know, the, the God who has created us in, in God's image um, is in other image bearers as well. And so uh, one of the uh, practices that uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Christina Cleveland, has taught me, particularly when going into difficult conversations, is to um, sort of visualize that conversation before you have it. And um, in your mind's eye, visualize yourself sitting in front of whoever that person is or whatever that situation is, and just saying the phrase, the image of God in me meets the image of God in you, and just sort of repeating that. And so you're not as focused on, you know, what are the talking points? What are the things I need to get off my chest or whatever the case may be? And, and those things have their value. But at the end of the day, a reminder that, uh, you know, the same God that's inspiring me to show up in this space has created the person in quote unquote opposition to me or whatever the case may be. And so therefore, if we remember that, um, there could be sacred value to every moment that every table can be an altar, then we can approach, I think, the way that we live and the way that we engage with those around us, uh, particularly during COVID when, you know, well, at least for those of us who are trying to stay safe, have not found ourselves inside of any type of church building. You know, I know that some folk, you know, the whole mask wearing thing is a whole political statement. And, you know, they think that God's going to protect them from COVID. So, I mean, more power to them, whatever. But um, I'd say for most of us, we're understanding that, you know, at least over the past three plus months, you know, that whole paradigm of what it means to be a believer has looked very different. It's had to look much more than showing up to a building because we haven't been. And so that's not something that I think we should lose even, you know, going into next year or whatever the case may be when there's some sort of restoration to the usual ways we gather. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's an important time for believers uh, in particular to sort of reframe and recast our vision around what it means to be a follower of the way. Absolutely. So shifting gears back to your, your personal story, uh, you ended up leaving Puerto Rico, though. Is that correct? I did. I did. As I splashed water on my face. It's all Sorry. good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did. So I spent one year there. And um, and so I, I, I spent one too many days at the beach. And so my grades were not looking um, exactly how they should. I had these visions of continuing to stay there. And uh, my parents said, no, we need your, to bring you behind home. And so they, of course, went out. And um, I spent a year at Oakwood College, now University, down in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and that was a good year. I didn't want to go because, again, I wanted to stay in Puerto Rico and that kind of a thing. And so I went into it with the wrong perspective, I think. Um, but being able to spend a year at HBCU uh, was really important, I think, for me. Um, and I've I've valued that a lot more since I've left from there, having had that year. So that was my sophomore year. And then I came back up here to Andrews back home and I did my last two years here at Andrews and finished up undergrad here. 
And you ended up going to law school as well. I did. I did. So I spent one year after undergrad working um, as an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, coordinating service projects and service learning um, on the campus of the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne. Um, Did that for a year. Then in 2010, started uh, law school at the UIC John Marshall Law School in Chicago, Illinois, uh, which was a a great experience. And, you know, I had a lot of ups and downs for sure. Um, Almost didn't make it through that first year. 1L Hell uh, is is definitely, um, it's been labeled correctly, for sure, at least for me. That's when I think, um, as I was talking earlier about my propensity to procrastinate, um, I really had to look myself hard in the mirror during that season and get that in line or else I literally wasn't going to make it. Um, And so thankfully got through that, graduated in 2013. Um, Then May 2013, later that summer, got married. Uh, My wife got a call to, to pastor in the East Coast area in New Jersey. And so we moved to Central Jersey uh, in the Princeton area, not far from Princeton University campus. Uh, her, her church was like right around the corner from the campus. And um, I, I had some struggles initially because I kind of shifted from Illinois to the East Coast, didn't really have any connections and had to take the New York bar. Uh, and so was able to do that, then sort of networked and had a lot of ups and downs with trying to figure that out, but ended up working or volunteering my time for a couple months at the Fair Housing Justice Center in New York City, focusing on housing discrimination, civil rights cases there in the five boroughs. Um, And so after about four or five months of volunteering my time, they thankfully got funding and were able to hire me. And so uh, I did that for about three and a half, four years uh, until 2017. And then that's when uh, I applied and was ultimately offered the opportunity to come to Andrews to serve as the VP for diversity and inclusion and just finished my third school year doing that. So I just gave you like the the, the fast version of where I'm at, up that, to where I'm at now. That's great, though. And, you know, a lot of people, when you say, oh, I went to law school and I took the bar, we all assume that somebody's going to practice, right? That, that's yeah. what they're going to do. But there are many different avenues and there are many ways to utilize the skills that you get in law school. And I will co-sign that 1L is hell. Um, <laughs> definitely had people who did not come back after that first year when I was there. Um, that was a whole experience. But in any case, did you say, okay, did you make a conscious decision to say, I'm going to look outside of the law and do something else? Or did you just come to that realization based on the opportunities that were being presented? It was more the latter. Uh, I, you know, I, first of all, I didn't ever envision coming back to work at Andrews, um, you know, cause you know, I'm not being in ministry and wasn't like really teaching or anything at the time. So this, this position of course actually didn't even exist. And so, um, it wasn't something that was really on my radar. Um, but due to some intentional conversations that had happened and had been sparked on this campus in particular, um, in response to a uh, student-led protest along with a staff matter, member during February of 2017, really started to re, um, re-energize the conversation on this campus around facing some of the um, historical racism and oppression that's existed here for a long time within this, this campus community. And so um, sort of as an alum, observing that from afar was very intriguing and interesting to see um, 
And it was really one of those things where um, a couple of people kind of mentioned it to me like, hey, like, have you thought about maybe doing that kind of work? And I hadn't, you know, I'd never done like a DNI training or anything like that. And, you know, my thought process was, well, you know, I may not have the qualifications or the experience to do that. Uh, but as I started to think about both my my experience in growing up in this community, which is a it's a very diverse campus in the midst of a not so diverse community and understanding the complexities of that and also being in the civil rights advocacy space, which was really something that they were valuing. And as I started to discover, there were a lot of parallels between that legal civil rights advocacy work and DNI inclusion work on a campus like ours. Um, it started to make more sense and, and I got more and more intrigued by it. And ultimately, um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I, even before I'd even decided to apply for the job, uh, one day I was kind of just, you know, writing some thoughts down on my computer. And then over the course of like two, three days of like compiling just thoughts that were coming to me, I put together like a 17 page document, which was like a vision for what, you know, this job could be or what the DNI work on this campus could look like. And I felt a little silly because it was like, why am I putting all this time into visioning something that's not even, I haven't even applied, you know, let alone been offered a job, you know? And so, yeah, but I think it was little um, moments like that. And there were a couple other moments of things that happened, a little nudges <laughs> that sort of uh, revealed to me that this was something that I needed to pursue. Um, and so it was really just the opportunity itself that intrigued me. And, you know, had it not popped up, you know, I was it was I wasn't dissatisfied with what I was doing. I, it was actually really rewarding work, um, opening up housing choices for folks in New York City. Um, it, it was really, really eye opening and rewarding work to be involved in. And so uh, this was definitely just a unique opportunity that sort of um, shifted um, my gaze, if you will. Um, but but I felt that what I'm doing now continues to fit within uh, what I believe my purpose is. And that's just mainly to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. That's great. And before we dive deeper into your current role um, and your thoughts on the focus on DNI companies and institutions across the country right now, I want to talk a little bit about the personal dynamic with your wife, um, because mm -hmm. you, know, you mentioned moving to the East Coast for her ministry and, you know, her taking this church on. And, you know, you hear these stories and I talk to, to people all the time, both, both genders who are, you know, a part of a one half of a couple where, where both spouses are equally ambitious, um, equally mm -hmm. sought after. And it's a dance, right. To, to yeah. make moves and have the consideration for somebody else's career um, or ministry or interest or what have you. So how did you both navigate that? considering that you had come to central New Jersey for her to pastor here? Yeah. So it's been, it's been interesting. It's been difficult at times for sure. And I think um, maybe that goes without saying, but um, when we initially like made the move to New Jersey, um, it was definitely kind of one of those things where it was like, well, I guess I'll just kind of take a chance and, you know, see if I'm able to figure it out, um, you know, for, you know, my career or whatever the case may be, I would definitely say that, you know, particularly at that point, um, again, sort of fitting with my personality type, 
Um, I didn't have a lot of like personal ambition per se. I didn't necessarily like, uh, you know, and it was the same thing going into law school. Like I didn't go into law school, like wanting to work at like a highly sought after firm or whatever the case may be. That was just, it just wasn't, I wasn't like a gunner or anything like that in class. It was, you know, I'll kind of end up where I end up. And uh, I wanted to do something in the civil rights advocacy frame. And so it was just something that um, I just hope would come together. And so when we moved, when we moved to Jersey, um, yeah, like for a period of time, I was just like working retail just because, and, and that was an interesting experience being, you know, someone with a, you know, doctoral level degree and I was actually selling suits. And so I'm, I'm talking with a lot of attorneys and, you know, they may strike up a conversation with me and ask me about my background. And then when I tell them, it's kind of like the, okay, that's interesting. Like, you know, what are you doing here? Kind of a thing. So that was, that had its own levels of, you know, and and I had to really come to face to face with a lot of, um, you know, messaging around what it means to be a man and that kind of a thing and a provider and, and all of that, uh, because I, I definitely was in a space where, you know, I, I was not the breadwinner, quote unquote, not even close to, to what that would be. Um, but I got to the point where, you know, you can only sort of wallow in that for so long, you, you know, and um, and so it was it was ultimately at her encouragement that I um, decided to uh, volunteer time at the Fair Housing Justice Center, which ultimately meant, you know, not working this hourly retail job that I was working, which, although I wasn't getting much, was able to provide at least something. So I sort of reduced my hours to the point where I was just making enough from that job to be able to pay for like New Jersey transit and, you know, you know, um, MTA and all that different type of stuff. Uh, Because although that travel can be convenient, it can be expensive for sure. Um, And so ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, after some months, you know, it ended up working out and um, was able to make it work. And so um, then thinking about coming here, I think it definitely was difficult for Tassiana, for sure. Um, she she was in a space where she did know that there needed to be a shift, uh, whether that was to another church or whatever the case may be. She was open to a shift and, and trying something different. Uh, we talked a lot about, um, you know, pursuing schooling. And so she's been doing some master's work and things of that nature while we were here. And that was something that she always ultimately was thinking through wanting to do. And so, um, and then connected with that, you know, she's been able to get involved with a um, a ministry on our campus at being one of their teaching pastors. And so, um, but it took a bit to, to find that groove. I th- I'd say the first year and a half, two years of being here. I just finished my third school year. Uh, were extremely difficult, I think, on that front of, you know, her also finding her space. And then also for me, like being in a completely newly created position and, um, you know, dealing with all the different perceptions around what DNI work is and uh, all the thoughts that people have around what it is you represent and things of that nature. Uh, it was a difficult transition for sure. Um, and so it's something that we just continue to, you know, try to stay in communication about. And, um, 
you know, ultimately, hopefully to ensure that we're both able to um, fulfill our callings, you know, wherever, wherever that takes us. I'm glad you recounted that because I've been having a ton of conversations, um, both with people who've been on the show, friends, you know, all colleagues. And, you know, we are in that that generation where women of color are killing it. Right. Let's just like be clear. Right. It's like knocking it out of the water on the education front, on the career front, whatever it is that they're like putting their hands to. And there's even been talk talk of like how black women are leading the charge in civil rights and theology and, you know, and all that other stuff. Um, and when I talk to a lot of men on the show and a, and a men in, in my personal life, many of them in hindsight, they may not have seen it at the moment, but many of them in hindsight, when they talk about and they were dating or newlyweds, that struggle, right, of yeah. who, how how do I identify myself as a man? And if you grew up in the Christian faith as the king and priest of my home and, mm-hmm. and demonstrate headship when my partner is, in a sense, doing better than me mm-hmm. professionally or what have you. And I think sometimes those feelings of inadequacy um, or ego or pride can right. creep in and create dysfunction where there didn't have to be dysfunction. Right. Sure. Um, sure. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the this realization of not a not wallowing in it and mm-hmm. also finding a path forward that may not have looked traditional. Right. So yeah. it wasn't the path forward wasn't just we'll just get a get a job. You know, it was all right. Well, this is where the opportunity is presenting itself. It's not going to bring in money. Um but it's moving you in the direction of where you have interest and passion. And I think that that's something um, to, that's interesting and, and beneficial for both men and women to hear. Because oftentimes women, too, I think grapple with, OK, I, I can do for myself, I can do for this family, but my partner may not be able to right now in the way that I can. And how does that affect how I view him? Right. right. Um, and respect right. him. So there, there's an understanding that needs to happen there. There's an understanding that needs to happen from. Uh, the man to say, okay, I, I'm not necessarily uh, leading in the traditional sense from a financial professional perspective, but I can still be the head of my home. And we're working together as a partnership for the greater good of us. And also there are ebbs and flows, right? Like, so there was right. a sacrifice that, that you made to come to the East Coast. And now there are adjustments or sacrifices that have to been, have had to have been made by your wife to come mm-hmm. back to to Andrews. And that is an interesting dance. Um, and it's work. And and I think sometimes we go into things with this idealized view of like, we have the same values. We have the same, uh, we both have goals. We're just going to make it work. And there are some very real obstacles that have to be overcome and it's not always going to be easy. And it's not that both parties are always going to feel like they're getting a hundred percent of what they want all the time. It's a number of levers that have to be pulled, but this the the ability to work through that and think through creative solutions where it doesn't feel like one party is the one emptying their cup completely for the benefit of the other party's goals or ambitions. And I think you guys have balanced that really, really well. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, and you you captured that, you know, very well in your description of it. And and I think um, you know, it's one of those things where it's definitely, it's not perfect. It, it can be messy at times. It can be very difficult. Um, but the other thing that I think that we've both learned is that, you know, life is oftentimes about seasons. And, you know, there are um, various seasons in a relationship. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, the dynamics of work situations change. Sometimes the dynamics of relationships change, whatever the case may be. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, 
you know, ultimately, and in, in from the Christian perspective, and I've, I've done some real soul searching on this, I feel like COVID has really forced folks to really kind of do some, you know, some introspection and things of that nature. Uh, but but I'm, I'm, what I'm really kind of seeing in, in our journey is that, um, you know, ultimately, um, you know, God desires what's best for each of us, both as a collective, but also individually. And so, um, you know, I, I don't see God, you know, requiring anybody to, to your point, just constantly be emptying their cup, you know, eternally, whatever the case may be, uh, when there are desires and dreams that God's placed on, you know, a person's heart, um, you know, ultimately, um, everyone within the situation will be okay. And that might look different to people on the exterior. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it's important to just follow, um, you know, that the leading in, in that situation and, um, you know, sort of embrace the discomfort and embrace the, the difficulty, the complexity, the nuance, and, and um, just kind of move forward from there. Absolutely. Um, so shifting gears to the, to the journey that you're on now professionally, let let's start before I get into uh, some of my my thoughts and, and questions about where we are. Um, for those who don't know, right? What is diversity and inclusion? Uh, what is that role, right? In any organization, like what does that encompass? Because I, I think a lot of people don't even know what that means. Yeah, it's you know, I guess it's one of those things. where I do I know what it means? Uh, <laughs> but no, and so it's just sort of like you know. Uh, in in layman's terms or at like a foundational level, um, I think diversity and inclusion work is ultimately about um, developing uh, policies and structures and practices within an institution or corporation or wherever you're at that enables all the different persons who are a part of that space to be their authentic selves, to be able to thrive fully within your institution, your organization, corporation, whatever it is. Uh, that that's ultimately the the goal and that's the idea behind the um the work that I'm doing and that lots of others are doing across different sectors. Um it's understanding that the people that are a part of, you know, your organization, they're not just um, you know, assets or liabilities to be managed or you know, um, you know, widgets to be plugged in different situations and positions and things of that nature. But it's about developing a um, organizational culture which emphasizes the unique and inherent value of every person that's connected to that organization. And so, um, you know, it's it's so oftentimes the work is done from sort of a deficit frame of understanding. You know, where have we? fallen short in this area or these areas over time. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, particularly that's that's where a lot of folks, like, for example, a lot of folks in the higher ed space, um, you know, I remember it was last summer, you know, when we could actually travel places. Um, I was at a conference in Atlanta and um, it was looking at diversity and civility in the liberal arts and there were probably about 21 or 22 um, educational institutions that were there. And one of the days we had a roundtable with different um, similar positions. So all the chief diversity officers and stuff, we just had 
like a breakfast round table and there were probably about 17 of us. And the thing that was interesting about that, that I learned was that all of us had been hired within the past three to five years, like five at the most, most of us like within the past, you know, two, three years, almost all of us were the first persons in our positions in those educational institutions. And then almost all of us were hired on the backs of some sort of an uprising that happened on campus. And so again, the the climate of the work is oftentimes, at least at the initial frame, uh, talking about um, where have we fallen short? And we finally, you know, the buzz about where we've fallen short has finally gotten loud enough that we're wanting to bring someone on to do something about it. Um, so in a lot of organizations, your DNI person just kind of puts out fires and, and that's sort of what they want that person to be there for. Uh, I would encourage folks to steer away from those kinds of positions. Um, I, I think ultimately DNI work being done at its best is a person who, first of all, um, you know, is leading an office that hopefully has more than that person involved uh, just for wider capacity. But then also it's someone that's continuing to, to hold, an, hold an organization accountable, but it's holding them accountable to a strategic plan and vision that the organization has bought into, particularly the highest levels of leadership in that organization. So what I've learned is that the work that I'm trying to do um, only goes as far as the commitment of my president and provost, you know, and as, as visible and as as, as um, vocal as they can be on these issues, the more latitude I have to, um, you know, move the work into the various different spaces on our campus where it needs to happen. And, and it may look different in those different spaces. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that, again, there's, there's a lot of... Um, it's it's sort of a it's a really new conversation that people who are entering into it right now, uh, but it's still relatively new even for those of us who've been doing this work over the past few years. Of course, there's some institutions that have been doing DNI work for a long time, um, but I'd say that's more the exception than the rule. Um, and and so I, I guess I'd also say that um, at the end of the day, I think what's really important to remember is that. Um, you know, the work of one thing that I've learned about this work to define it as well is that um, you're oftentimes going to be unsatisfied in this work. Um, but that's actually not a bad thing. It's actually not, it's actually okay uh, because the, the work of inclusion of people, of perspectives, of experiences, of, um, you know, journeys and things of that nature within your organization is always going to be a hard thing to do. Um, but the benefits, you know, are definitely outweigh the difficulties of bringing that into fruition. And so uh, another quick thing I'll say is that a, a really powerful frame for folks to look into if they're more interested in DNI work, particularly from the higher ed perspective, um, is the work of Dr. Damon A. Williams, who's the creator of the Inclusive Excellence Frame, which is something that we've um, strived to adopt here at Andrews as well. Uh, he has a book called Strategic Diversity Leadership, which a lot of folks see as really like the Bible around this kind of work on campuses. Yeah, so Inclusive Excellence at the end of the day is really looking at what I was just talking about, which is um, how 
the organization as a whole embraces the, um, the, the challenge and the opportunities of what I like to call inclusive diversity. Because, you know, diversity is the old saying that, you know, diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. And so, um, and, and, and dance in your own way, like not asked to do the square dance or whatever the case may be, but do what you want to do kind of a thing. And so um, organizations that embrace inclusive excellence are saying that uh, we're including everyone in what we're doing, and we're also empowering them all to do excellent work. And so whatever it takes to empower the various persons in our institution, that's where sort of the equity work comes in. Have there been populations within our organization that have been left behind previously? Why is that? What can we do to ensure that they are empowered to do excellent work within our space because we previously have not been empowering them to do so? And so that's sort of a more, and so once you understand the deficit, you can now shift to the positive framing of equity and inclusive work so that it's not necessarily always being done from like a deficit frame, which it is important to start from, but you're then transitioning it now to, um, okay, how do I envision over the next five, over the next 10 years, what a inclusive and excellent uh, organization looks like? And so- that's sort of in a nutshell what the work is. And you set my next question up perfectly. So thank you. Making my job easier. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the frustrations that I'm hearing uh, from folks across corporate academia, et cetera, is this idea that we're operating um, from a deficit. And, and you use that language and described it in a, in a much more intelligent way than I could. Um, but feeling like it's always reactionary, right? Every time there's a protest or there's an event or things reach a fever pitch, people start to scramble at a very senior level. They're like, we have to focus on this. So I think um, people are feeling disillusioned and jaded about even if we do create these five to 10 year plans, they're jaded about the fact or they're not optimistic that these organizations will continue to make it a priority um, after a, as things settle right in the world. And there's not just huge discourse about it. But do you think that this uh, substantive focus on DNI with long-term strategic goals in play. Do you think that that's here to stay? Um, I mean, that's that's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a I'm naturally a skeptic, and so I will say this: I think that the moment that we're in right now, and I confirmed this in a conversation I had with my dad, who's seen a lot more of these moments than I have. Um, he said to me that this moment feels different as far as the engagement that we're seeing from folks. And so I'm cautiously and skeptically optimistic that it's here to stay. Um, but I do think that, you know, the folks who um, are maybe even more skeptical than me, that they do have the weight of history on their shoulders because that's how it's always happened historically. And so um, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if we sort of ship, shift back into like an apathetic, uh, you know, get over it kind of a frame, you know, a year or two from now. Um, but but I think that again, it is it's important to to cast cast that vision um in a tangible, measured way. So it's important to build that in with um how are you evaluating progress? Um, who's doing that evaluating? Um and 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 how does that evaluation as you're in the midst of a plan 
How does it shift um, the tangible action steps that you're taking? Because you could get a year or two in and realize that, oh, okay, well, this felt like a good idea a year or two ago. Some of this is still good, but we need to tweak it a bit here because in our evaluation process, we're hearing from our organization that they're interacting with it in this particular way. So you have to be flexible and malleable um, when you're in the process. And that's a part of that long-term buy-in. So I would agree that if you're not going to have a long-term buy-in commitment, it's better to just not really even start it personally, because um, then you have people in your organization that are um, excited about what's happening initially, and then it sort of fizzles out, and then it leaves when certain people leave, and that kind of a thing. And you may end up worse off than you were when it began. Uh, one of the things that we commit to at Andrews, um, so that we don't necessarily just get caught up in the it's a hot thing to talk about right now is is one of the things that, um, and this was in place before I got here, we do have a diversity and inclusion training program for our employees and students. And we onboard new students, and new employees every year when they come in. Um, but the the professor, Dr. Carol Warford Hunt, who um, is the head of our graduate psychology department, um, who and her team developed that training model They've actually committed to not do, and we call it a mirror training program. We don't do mirror um, for persons on campus in response to incidents. Like we just, we do, we don't, you know, it's not like the thing of we had an incident happen. So we're going to have you know, a microaggression training or, a, you know, unconscious bias training or whatever the case may be. Hey, let's find a company and do a training. Um, we're, we're not going to do it just in response to an, an incident on our campus. Um, it's something that we've committed to making a part of our campus culture. And so there are, spe- there are specified times within um, our academic calendar in which these training opportunities happen. And, and, and it's a part of continuing education, both for students and employees. And so um, building that kind of a framework where it's something, again, that's an ingrained part of the organization as opposed to a thing that we tap into when we need to put out a fire is going to help the work be sustained more because, you know, the folks who are doing the work aren't going to get burnt out as quick. They're not going to feel the weight of fixing all these different little issues and only talking about these conversations when folks are at the height of their emotional exhaustion around the topics, you know, because you're only going to be able to take things so far when that type of energy is being brought into the space. And so it's really all about how do we, again, ingrain this into how we operate as an organization and how do we commit to that ingraining and continue to deepen that year to year over a period of years. That's good. And, you know, I, I've been sort of having these private conversations with you know friends and former colleagues about how they're being tapped. They don't even work in HR, but it's just like yeah. with everything going on in the world, senior leadership is like, hey, you, you're diverse. <laughs> Do you have an opinion on what we should be doing? Um, and they feel yeah. that they're getting a seat at the table um, to voice things that they may not have felt comfortable voicing before and helping to contribute ideas, but do have a concern that it's not going to continue uh, moving forward, but then asking themselves, do I really have the power to make sure that this remains at the forefront moving forward? And you remembered, yeah. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, the metrics and the things that you can measure along the way to help keep the, the train moving. But more specifically, I want to ask, 
you know, what are some what is some advice that you have from those who are not necessarily in the DNI space within an institution um, or or organization, but are being asked for input, but want to know how they can help to uh, make sure that senior leadership is held accountable to continue to focus on these things once the dust settles, if it settles. Yeah. Uh, So what I would say to those persons is that on the front end, when they're being um, approached about, you know, doing, you know, like a DNI seminar or could you lead a conversation or dialogue or all these little buzzwords that we hear, um, I would just, you know, I would I would first of all say something like, well, you know, I, I appreciate you reaching out and I'm glad that you're interested in putting some effort and emphasis on this topic. Let's have a conversation about what is going to happen both before and after this conversation or this dialogue or this training. And um, what is your plan to invest in this work for the foreseeable future? Like this is something that is going to continue. And what's your plan for that? And I would get commitments on that up front before committing to any particular um, event or conversation. because. So whether you're inside or outside the organization, and of course, do it really respectfully, you know, um, if you're inside the organization and the response to that is, oh, well, you know, we just kind of want to have this one thing. Well, your attitude should be, well, somebody else can do that then. Like, I don't have to do that. I don't have to put the energy and time into like a one-off conversation because that also puts you, that person in the in the sort of seat of, oh, well, you were a part of that one thing we did a few years ago, then nothing happened after that. Like, what's the deal? And it's like, it makes you become sort of the scapegoat now for their lack of planning and investment. Um, And if you're outside the organization, it's like, well, yeah, that's just a waste of my time. Why would I do that if you're not going to commit to anything long term? And so I think Having that discussion on the front end is really your only leverage point to understand or gauge or ensure whether or not anything's going to happen after that particular moment. Um, And if they're really serious about doing um, what they should be doing, because the other thing is that when folks do reach out, and, and oftentimes these folks are white who are reaching out, they honestly don't know what to do exactly, which which is an okay place to be if you're open to being, you know, to being shown or to having a conversation about what you perhaps should be doing. And if that's the perspective they're coming to it with, then you, you're you now being given an opportunity where you can really help to shape some pretty cool things that can really shift culture in an organization going forward. And that's obviously work worth investing and putting time in for sure. So, um, just have a couple of those really direct questions on the front end, and then that can help folks understand whether or not this is something I should be putting my time in. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought the scapegoat uh, point up, because I think that's the fear. Even if they don't have the words around it, that is the mm-hmm. fear that a lot of diverse employees have, that yeah. they will step into the fire with this and then become a scapegoat uh, when things don't go as planned or they were held up, you know, as a, almost like as a trophy, like, look, we're, you know, we're, we're holding out this person who's diverse in our organization, we're committed, and then everything falls apart. Um, and I think people do need to be empowered to see the value that they bring 
um, and their worth, if they're being asked the question, you absolutely should feel empowered to speak up for yourself. And if it doesn't feel right in a way, not be afraid of retribution by Mm -hmm. saying, no, if this is just a moment in time, I'm not interested and this is not my job. Right. So that's the other um, thing. What's what's your job description? I was going to say that, like be, be, you know, and employees in general, particularly Particularly black employees, employees of color in this season, know your job description like the back of your hand because it's lots of different things getting slipped in there right now. So that's that's really key and feel empowered to say. um, And it's tough because, you know, I'm not in a particular person's shoes within their organization. And I understand that you have to be careful, particularly as a person of color, around how you navigate requests from superiors in general. So it may be hard to say no. And I, I just want to be sensitive to that and empathetic to where different folks may be. But so obviously trust your instincts on that. But if you if you um, have been asked that question, um, you likely are being given a bit more latitude to understand um, if this is a real moment or if this is just for show. Absolutely. So moving forward, uh Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. This is this is a great question, and I love that that you asked it. And so, um, as I was thinking about it, um, I think back on my my first year in law school again. And so, um, so basically, and I'll, I'll just be a little bit more transparent about how that struggle went for me um, at the end of my first school year, uh, our first year one L. Um, I was in a situation where um, I was not sure whether or not I was going to be able to continue. I was kind of like in that little middle ground. And so um, I had a summer session basically to figure it out. And I had to get my GPA up to a certain point by the beginning of 2L fall to continue. Um, And so I was already dealing with a lot of anxiety and doubt because like to your point, you know how like it was even actually after our first semester, a couple a folk sort of disappeared. And, you know, of course, a couple of them were black folk and we kind of went in, won a lot of us. And, you know, we had our balsa chapter and we all like, all right, we all make it together, that kind of a thing. A couple of us didn't make it through that first semester. I actually, you know, I was in Chicago. They have this thing called Taste of Chicago. And I went to a booth and I was getting some food and I actually saw one of my classmates serving me you know, and we didn't have a conversation, but it was like, we, we kind of looked, we locked eyes and we had a conversation. Like I knew what the situation was, but I also wanted to firm and let him know like, Hey man, like, you know, it's all good. Like it happens. Like you're, you haven't like, you're not a failure because you failed at something. Uh, but no words were exchanged. It was just like in that moment, we knew what the deal was. And so that experience was sort of seared in my mind, even going into the second semester and, of course, now going into the summer. And so I was talking to um, the associate dean of students at the time, and she was telling me what I needed to do to continue. And so um, she basically said, like, OK, there are these two like weekend, like one credit courses that you need to take. And if you take those and get an A, which should be pretty simple and straightforward, uh, you can, you'll be fine. You can continue. And I said, okay, cool. What's the first one? And it was this, um, forget the type of class, but I really didn't care what it was. I was, I knew I was taking it and it was going to meet on two consecutive Sundays. And I just had to do a project with it, get an A or B. And that's the idea. And I was like, all right, cool. What's the second one? A similar kind of setup. Um, but the course was supposed to be done on two consecutive Saturdays. And so 
that that presented a challenge for me because um, I observed the Saturday Sabbath. And so um, I kind of explained that to her and sort of reminded her of that. Um, and she basically replied by chuckling and said, OK, well, I guess you're going to have to choose between your conviction and your career. And like, that's your decision. It's up to you. But these are the only two options for you. Uh, and then, you know, she hung up the phone. And so I, I was really at a crossroad personally because it was just sort of like, um, I don't know. For me, it was I, I, I was I was all messed up in the head. I was thinking like, you know, is God really going to care if I, you know, break my personal Sabbath like these two Saturdays and do this class so that I can continue? I can do so much good with this degree and blah, 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 and sort of justifying it in some ways and, you know, talk with my parents about it. And of course, they were kind of just telling me that, you know, they'll support whatever I decide to do, but, you know, that they're praying for me, that kind of a thing. And um, my wife was just, you know, my girlfriend at the time, and I was just in a really um, weird headspace. And so um, I had a few days to decide. So I went home, my parents were here in Michigan. I went home that weekend and um, attended a summer worship service here on our campus. And I really didn't want to be in church that day. I was just like bitter. I was already upset at God. I was just thinking like, you know, what was this all worth? Like, it's going to be super embarrassing. I'm going to have to drop out all because of the fact that I can't take this class on the Sabbath, which is only something that I observe because of my religious connection, you know, or my spiritual belief. And so it was, I was just really frustrated. I, of course, wasn't bringing up like, you know, the procrastination and stuff that probably led to some of my grades. But um, anyway, you know, you're not rational when you're upset. So went to this church service and um, the folks who were leading out, one of them, you know, and he's someone who's sort of a bit of a spiritual mentor of mine. He was talking about how and he he didn't know what was happening with me at the time. But he was talking about how he went to this conference, this um, conference on like counseling and psychology, which is what he does professionally, and how a presenter was talking about how um, the chemicals that are released in the brain when you experience both hope and fear. He was talking about how when you experience fear, you there are chemicals released at the back of your brain that push forward to sort of paralyze you and to paralyze your thought. And all you can think about is that thing that you're afraid of, but that when you experience hope that there are chemicals released at the front of your brain, which sort of push back on those chemicals that have been released by fear. And, and the whole idea in the presentation was that those chemicals can't coexist at the same time. Like there'll be a battle back and forth, but at, at a certain moment you choose one or the other and then that one wins out and pushes the other back or pushes the other forward. And so um, then he said, you know, someone in here is paralyzed by fear, but, but God's calling them to choose hope, that kind of a thing. And it was just, you know, it wasn't like a huge shift. It wasn't like some extraordinary thing that I had to do, but it was just like a, that just quick shift in perspective to say like, okay, I'm wallowing in the fear of losing my career, of losing what I, you know, my future and my dreams and all these different things that I was thinking about um, and just shifting to say, all right, God, I'm going to trust that you have some sort of way to figure this out. Like, I don't know how, but I'm going to choose hope. So I went back after the weekend and I met with um, my personal academic advisor um, 
you know, we know at law schools, they have those couple of advisors that work with us who were are a little bit challenged. And so I, I met, I went to meet with her and um, she basically said to me like, hey, look, um, at this point, you know, I understand your religious conviction, so I'm not going to, you know, push back on you there. But at this point, you essentially need one of your professors to change your grade and to bump it up. Like that's the, that's your only option at this point. And I've been doing this for 14, 15 years. And that's only happened like one or two times. And so I'm saying that to not discourage you, but just to be real with you. And so, you know, I know you're a praying person. So like, pray (laughs) is essentially what she said to me. And hopefully, you know, you get a miracle essentially. And so, um, you know, I thanked her. And um, so I had a, I had one exam conference left with my criminal law professor uh, shout out to Professor Corey Young. He, he'll probably—I don't—I've shouted him out a few different times. He's at a different law school now, um, so hopefully he hears one of the, these shout outs one day. Uh, but I was—I had a phone conference set up with him because he was in the process of moving to another law school, um, and so he had emailed me a copy of my exam, and I had a chance to review it before the conversation. And so I had all my different arguments for where I should get different points and all this different stuff mapped out and prepared. And so I'm riding the train back to my um, my apartment to get ready for this call. And um, like if you've ever ridden the the train in, in any major city, there's always people on the train that are doing something weird or trying to preach or just something like that. Right. So this day in CTA was just another regular day or something like that, where normally some guys on there trying to preach and I just put my headphones in or whatever. And so this guy was on the train and he was literally talking about like hope and fear. And he was just like how, you know, somebody on here just needs to choose hope, choose hope, choose hope. And it's just like, all right, God, like, I get it. Like, I I hear what you're trying to say. And I, again, I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I just had this piece that was weird. And again, so it wasn't like some superhuman thing I had to do. I just had to like shift that perspective and just real and just understand and accept that the peace that I was being given in the midst of a very difficult and disorienting situation was um, was authentic. So long story short, get to my apartment and I call Professor Young. And before I say anything, he says to me, hey, Michael, uh, before we jump into it, so I want to let you know, I was looking over your tests in preparation for this call um, and, you know, these different moments from class started coming back to mind of you sharing really interesting insights and perspectives in class, and uh, which was unique for me because, as you know, you spend most of your time in a law school class just trying not to get called on. But there are a couple of criminal law cases that, for whatever reason, I just took a liking to and I would share when others weren't sharing. And so he he said to me that um, when that was coming back to my mind, you know, I was reminded that you're much smarter than the grade that I gave you on this test. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, wow. And so I, you know, I thanked him for that. And he said, so um, let's take a look at it and let's see. He's like, you know, let's see what we can do. Like, let's talk about it. So I went into my spiel and, you know, I gave him a couple, like it was like three or four different questions where I was making my case for more points and, you know, I pretty much everything short of begged him to give me a better grade. <laughs> you know, I didn't explain the whole situation to him because I didn't want him to feel awkward. But I basically was like, you know, I could really use a bump up if if you could. And so he said, all right, well, thanks. This has been a good conversation. 
if anything changes, you'll hear from uh, the associate dean uh, for academics in about a week. And of course, you remember, she's the person who told me that I'd have to choose between my conviction and career. And so I wasn't feeling very promising about hearing from her. So I spent the rest of that week, again, walking into that piece, praying, family, of course, praying about it. And um, that next weekend, I got an email from that dean uh, letting me know that my grade had been changed. It had been improved to actually a a letter grade above what I needed uh, to continue. And um, so for me, after going through my educational journey and experience, that confirmed to me, you know, number one, that God is not only real, but that um, he's actively engaged in my life, that he has a purpose, he has a calling, he has a vision uh, for this, um, and and that um, I need to apply myself more (laughs) because it was a wake-up call for sure, Uh, but ultimately that he's in control and and that I didn't need to um, worry myself with uh, the opinions or the, um, the framings that others had placed on me but to trust in the fact that he was guiding and he was leading. And so, yeah, that, that was my long-winded answer to your question. That's great. Um, and before I let you get out of here, tell me about Against the Wall. Sure. So Against the Wall, it is a, um, an org- it's not really an organization. It's more of a movement, a passion project that I co-founded uh, with a friend of mine who's a pastor, Pastor Ty Gibson. Uh, my wife, Tassiana, is involved with it as well. and. Um, It is a dual metaphor. It stands for the fact that we are actively against walls of racial separation and oppression. And that number two, we stand in solidarity with folks whose backs have been pushed up against walls of racial separation and oppression. Um, We draw some um, some inspiration from Howard Thurman, who, who talks about in one of his essays about backs being pushed up against the wall. Uh, we, we also draw some ins- biblical inspiration from a, a verse in Ephesians 2, verse 14, which talks about how um, in Christ's body, um, wall, the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is broken down. So um, we're, we're trying to speak with you know, passion and clarity against those walls, both inside our church and also outside. And so if folks want to learn more, they can go to againstthewall.org. We have some videos and and blogs and articles and things like that and, and more information around how folks can get involved if they're interested in that work. That's great. And do you have an online presence where people can find you? Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at VP Nixon, and that's a zero instead of a O, because I think that was already taken. And um, I'm at Michael T. Nixon on Instagram, Michael T. Nixon on Facebook. Um, yeah, and just you know, feel free to connect with me on there. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and particularly getting into your insight around DNI. It's most certainly at the forefront of my mind, and so many people that I know who listen to this show. So thank you uh, for sharing your expertise and for being with us today. I hope you sure. enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks for having me. And, and I really appreciate you having me on the platform. Awesome. And to our listeners, I know many of you have been looking for more ways to get involved uh, in the fight against racism. Make sure you check out Against the Wall. Uh, and those who've been actually reaching out to me personally about the conversations they're having at their employers, about their input for DNI. I hope that you've taken some really great tips away from this, uh, this interview, but don't be afraid to reach out to Michael as well uh, for more information. And lastly... As always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Tovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.